The following sermon was delivered on March 21st, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Ministerial assistant Zachary Groff delivered this message entitled The Dead Church on Revelation 3, 1-6. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com or contact us at info at antiochpca.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. What does death sound like? Over a century ago, death roared into the skies of eastern France for four solid years. From September 6, 1914 until November 11, 1918, from the first Battle of the Marne to Armistice Day, German, British, French, and eventually American armaments thundered the sounds of explosive and violent death all along the Western Front of World War I. The sound of death split the air all along the Western Front. Well, in our passage today, the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the church in Sardis, and in his words, we hear what death sounds like. Not on a physical battlefield, but in the church. We also hear of what life sounds like in the church. Indeed, Christ alerts the church in Sardis that he knows their true deathly condition and he graciously directs them in the way which leads to life with him. Now, this alarming letter comes to us. So how should we receive it? As this letter comes to us, shouldn't we as a congregation of believers, as his flock, Give heed to the words of Christ who truly knows us, authoritatively directs us, and counsels us, and whose design it is to delight in us for all eternity. Yes, we should. And as we do, I will seek to show you that because Christ disapproves of the dead church, he instructs her to repent that she might enjoy his favor. Because Christ disapproves of the dead church, he instructs her to repent that she might enjoy his favor. I've organized tonight's message under three headings, emphasizing the fact that our text this evening is from Christ himself and to us. First, Christ's disapproval from verse 1, and then Christ's direction from verses 2 and 3, and then finally Christ's delight from verses 4 through 6. So consider verse 1, in which we are introduced to two objects of focus under the heading of Christ's disapproval. First, the Christ who disapproves, and then of what Christ disapproves. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Note that insofar as Christ brings this message to the church through its angel, that he's speaking of spiritual concerns and matters. He's speaking of spiritual realities here, and he's speaking authoritatively. He is uh, giving a weight to the written message of the one who says these things. Christ is rightly declaring the will of God, a prophetic utterance carrying the authority of the triune God. And so he adopts a model or a type of uh, what is frequent in the Old Testament, thus saith the Lord, the one who possesses or holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, thus he says. But the divine nature of the Christ behind the message is more particularly described not by the form or the structure of the address, but by the specific details of what Christ possesses. 
And this is where there's something of the mystery, where we need to, we need to figure this out. The seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What do these two sets of seven tell us about Christ in our passage? Well, first, Christ is he who has the seven spirits of God. He possesses the fullness of the Holy Spirit who proceeds through him and from him as eternal God, sole redeemer of God's elect and only mediator between God and man. Remember what Christ promised his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion and death in John 15, 26. He said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. So this spirit who proceeds from the Father is sent by Christ the Son, and we're given a picture of that here when we're told that he has in his hands the seven spirits of God. Now, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ possessed the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's what this number seven is signifying to us. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this spirit is referred to as the spirit of the Son, the spirit of Christ, and the spirit of Jesus Christ. There is an ineradicable inseparable affiliation between the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ presented to us in the pages of the New Testament. Thus, we confess the Nicene Creed with all Protestant churches as this, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son. As a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, and as some of you as Orthodox Presbyterians or as members of the uh, Free Church of Scotland, we likewise confess in chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity in our Westminster Confession of Faith that the Holy Spirit is eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And it is through Christ who stands as the mediator between God and man that way the truth and the life that the church receives the Holy Spirit as both God himself and as the gift of God, as we prayed not too long ago in our service. Second, Christ is he who has the seven stars. He has the seven spirits and the seven stars. And what this indicates to us is that Christ is the head of the church, and he exercises active control over not only the church generally, but over her ministers particularly. This is not the first time that Christ has addressed himself to us in this way in Revelation. At the beginning of his letter to the church in Ephesus, Christ described himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, who says this. And what was true for Ephesus, and also for Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira up to this point, is true for Sardis. Might I remind you that these letters wouldn't have been read in isolation. They were all read together. So the way Christ addresses himself to one church carries over to the others which follow after it. Indeed, this is true for us as we receive these letters, as we receive God's word to us, that he, Christ, alone is head and savior of his church. I looked again at the preface to the Presbyterian Church in America's book of church order, and uh, that stands together with our doctrinal standards as a constitution of our denomination. But our book of church order in its preface includes this glorious statement about Christ, the head of the church. It belongs to his majesty from his throne of glory to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men, thus immediately exercising his own authority and forcing his own laws unto the edification and establishment of his kingdom. 
And so though we don't see Jesus Christ physically standing here declaring to us his truth, though we don't experience him physically present in administering discipline or the sacraments, yet we see him at work immediately through his ministers. What is pictured for us is the seven stars which he possesses. He is head of his church. He's no foreigner to the church in Sardis or to the church here in Cashville. He is no remote king or ruler or faraway president or emperor or something, but he's intimately familiar with us. And just as he knew all things about the church in Sardis, he knows all things about you and about me and about our little flock here as it grows. And what is it that Christ knew about that church? Whatever it was met with his disapproval, as we'll see. And verse 1 continues, look at it with me. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. These seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3 are marked by shocking statements. They're marked by instructive drama, even. Imagine being in the congregation there in Sardis, and the messenger, the courier of the letter, whoever it was, after introducing Christ as gloriously sovereign in his church, recites Christ's words, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive. What would be your first thought? Perhaps you might expect a commendation. After all, Christ noted the, the deeds and toil and perseverance of Ephesus, the tribulation, poverty, and persecution in Smyrna, the faithful witness of Pergamum, the love and faith and service and perseverance, even in Thyatira, shot through as it was with all manner of sordid uh, false teaching. Yet there was always a commendation up until this point. Just as your mind anticipates some kind of statement of spiritual life and vitality, a good job, son, kind of statement, Christ says, but you are dead. The sound of death with impressive rhetorical force, lacking no drama, Christ condemns the superficial religion of Sardis. Christ disapproves of what? Of religious deadness here. What is dead Christianity? What does it look like? Christ gives us the answer in his condemnation of the Jewish scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28. You don't have to turn there. Just listen as I read. Uh, this is what Christ says. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Dead religion, as we see from that text, and as is suggested in Revelation chapter 3, is concerned solely with externals with the surface things, with, which, with that which is apparent to the physical eye. This is the cursedness of Islam. This is the cursedness of Roman Catholicism and Romanism. And of all forms of pseudo-Christianity that is concerned solely with liturgical forms or with religious activity or even social engagement, outward beauty and transformation, or perhaps, as is common in our area with fundamentalism, living strictly by the rules without any affection for Christ penetrating into the heart. See, the church is dead as long as its worship is formal and insincere. 
Such outward religious activity, absent a heart devotion for Christ and his truth, is the mark of dead spirituality. And what does this look like more particularly in the church today? I want to bring this home to us. Formalism, religious externalism, just doing the right things without a right heart attitude behind it. It leaves the church vulnerable to severe compromise of cultural accommodation. The church of religious externalism will ever and always slide very slowly or very quickly into the error of style over substance, niceness over truth, winsomeness over sincerity. Now, there's nothing wrong with good style, with kindness or winsomeness in the exercise of our faith. We, we're doing many renovations here in the church in order to attain a higher level of beauty and hospitality, that we might be a more welcoming environment for visitors, but also a more pleasant place to worship God free of distraction for ourselves. So there's nothing wrong with beauty. After all, the same Christ who condemned the dead church in Sardis is the Christ through whom all things bright and beautiful came into being, who has eternal compassion on sinners like you and like me, and who wept over Jerusalem at the prospect of the city's rejection of his Father's love and what was coming. And what I am saying is that style, niceness, winsomeness, outward beauty, they're not the essence of true religion in the church but they're aspects of the outworking of God's work in the hearts of the believers who make up the church. In fact, they're subjective cultural aspects. They're the application of heart truth, but they're not the essence itself. I was reading um, Henrik Bollinger's Decades this past week because a friend of mine gave them to me as a gift, and I stumbled across this line in a sermon of his on the church Uh, He was a 16th century German reformer, contemporary with Calvin, but over in another city. He said this, they that desire to live forever, does this describe you? They that desire to live forever and to participate in all heavenly good things must join in fellowship with the church of God, not only by outward and visible society, but by inward communion and fellowship wherein consisteth life and salvation. Our ministry at Antioch, bringing it home, is incomplete if we fail to see true spiritual growth in the men, the women, and the children of this congregation. And while true spiritual growth will manifest itself in things like regular worship service and prayer meeting attendance and an increase in knowledge of Scripture as we kick off a Sunday school and you attend to the ordinary means of grace and and even frequent hospitality and service and evangelistic campaigns, the essence of spiritual life is, as Bullinger says here, inward communion and fellowship with the saints, with God the Father, through Christ the Son, by the Holy Spirit himself. So how does Christ address this problem of spiritual deadness in Sardis? What does does Christ do with his disapproval then? Verses 2 and 3 in our passage contain Christ's direction, and specifically the substance of Christ's direction and the consequences of rejecting Christ's direction. That's what we're going to look at. Picking up at verse 2, we see the substance of Christ's direction, where he calls out to the church in Sardis. What does he say? Look at verse 2 with me. Wake up! Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. Is Christ addressing 
What is he addressing here? In other words, what, what justification does Christ give for issuing his direction to this church? We've considered his disapproval, but notice what he says here in verse 2. He says, For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Insofar as the church's religion was dead, insincere, formal, hypocritical, like the scribes and the Pharisees, it was incomplete Christianity. Sardis's Christianity was an imperfect and incomplete Christianity. They have a sluggish, sleepy, external form of religion lacking true power. But who among us can say that our spirituality is perfect, lest we be tempted to think that we've made it? Who among us is a perfect Christian? I'm not saying this is a dead church. I think that indictment is on the church in Sardis. I've seen much life here. But Yet, we might look at ourselves and consider that we are yet complete. We are yet to be completed. Let us hear what Christ says to incomplete Christians then. He says, wake up. Wake up. We could render this as be watchful, stand steadfast, or be on the alert. And this call to wakefulness and and watchfulness at the beginning of verse 2 then frames the four imperatives, the four commands which follow it in the rest of verse 2 and then in verse 3. Strengthen the things that remain. Remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Those four imperatives, strengthen, remember, keep, repent, they follow after the framing of be watchful. There are many voices in our society right now that are telling us to wake up. They're telling us, more particularly, to get woke. And I fear that the American church, in the American church, those voices are beginning to drown out Christ's legitimate call to wakefulness by eclipsing it with this call to wokeness. These competing calls to get woke direct us to do a few things, to recognize the realities of systemic injustice in our political systems, to uh, economic arrangements and social norms, uh, to respond to such injustices by revising our understanding of the past, issuing reparations to groups of people, and even silencing anyone or canceling anyone that pushes back against the Marxist materialism, uh, that narrative of modern social revolutionaries. And there's a hint of truth in these things because we are to wake up, but we aren't to get woke, my friends, in the way that modern society tells us. Somehow, these voices, and I'll name some of them for you, voices like Ta-Nehisi Coates, James Cone, and more recently, even evangelical pastors like Tabidi Anyabwile and Eric Mason, who are popular on platforms like Gospel Coalition and on other platforms, are gaining currency in the American church, even as they prescribe an agenda at odds with Christ's call to wakefulness here in Revelation chapter 3. I commend to you a book that just came out this week by uh, Vodi Bauckham called Fault Lines, if you want to explore some of these issues from a reliable voice in the conversation. But in contrast to the message of this so-called woke church, Christ tells us not to forget or to revise the past. No, but to remember the word of God, to keep it presumably against the corruptions of humanism, materialism, idolatry, and whatever else is out in the culture, and to repent from lifeless externalism. Yes, we are to wake up, but we are to wake up to life with God, not to the accommodation of socio-cultural fads. 
And boys and girls in particular, I call you, hold fast to the word of truth. There are attractive and seductive philosophies at work in the world around us. And there is one shield of faith, one sword of the Spirit to guard us against the corruption of these things. And that is God's word to us. Christ's call to wake up. Note that Christ tells the church in Sardis to strengthen the things that remain, to wake up and get working out, to strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. And it is as Christ comes alongside of the sleepy church as a spiritual trainer or coach, and he says, use it or lose it. How can you strengthen your spiritual fortitude? Remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. I think here we have a, a distillation of scriptural testimony which fleshes out the spiritual workout program. Psalm 119 verse 20 says, My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. And verse 24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. So we turn to the word. John 15, 12 to 17, what is it that you have received? This is what Christ says. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And this I command you, that you love one another. Another exercise, Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, a long passage, but a worthy program of action for strengthening oneself against the assaults of the enemy. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13 of sanctification expresses well the Spirit's power at work in believers as Christ calls us. It says that the Spirit uh, has done this for us. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The power of sin is destroyed. And the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Again, just quoting directly from Hebrews chapter 12. What is this saying? That is, Christ tells us to be strengthened, 
to remember what he's delivered to us, to wake up in all of this. Know this, dear believer, the Spirit is working in you, and so you too then can work out your faith with fear and trembling, with all confidence that God is faithful to strengthen you thereby. But if these positive motivators, all of these truths and realities, this direction, are not enough to move you, consider now the flip side. Consider the flip side. Consider the consequences of rejecting Christ's direction. We've seen the substance of it. Now consider the consequences. The consequences of rejecting Christ's direction are in the second half of verse 3. Look at it with me. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. The therefore here indicates Christ giving a reason for following his directions. He's telling you why you should heed his counsel, why the church in Sardis should heed his counsel and awaken from their spiritual slumber. If you do not, then he will come to you not in grace, in tenderness, not as a coach or as a helper, but he will come as a judge to vindicate his holiness and his righteousness in his church. He will not come as a helper in the struggle against the world, flesh, and the devil, but as an avenger of God against the wicked. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, Christ makes clear that he comes like a thief to those not who are in the church, but who are asleep in spiritual deadness and sin. He says there in Revelation chapter 16, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Thus, this is in keeping with the teaching of his earthly ministry in which he called his disciples to stay awake, to remain watchful. In Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44, he said this to them, Therefore, be on the alert. Could have said, wake up, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. In all of these passages, Christ isn't calling himself a thief. He's not coming to destroy or to to ransack and to steal from us. No, what he's highlighting is that like a thief, he will surprise those who are not watchful and ready. The parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25 in the following chapter opens this up even more and even further, and it's a call to watchfulness, to wakefulness. And remember, the church in Sardis would have had these things would have had this testimony, at least in seed form. They would have been aware of Christ's teaching on this point, and yet they've forgotten it and fallen asleep. They have died, as it were. What does Paul tell us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2? For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And he continues in verses 4 through 6. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. There's a difference between the spiritually dead and the spiritually alive, between those who are asleep and those who are alert. 
and sober-minded and awake to the things of God. So with these texts and their underlying common message of watchfulness and wakefulness, would the church in Sardis heed Christ's direction? That's the question. Perhaps the congregation which received this letter at the time did repent, for there is some evidence that the church in Sardis continued for several hundred years. But at some point in church history, it falls into obscurity, and the record disappears, it stops, it comes to an end. And today, there's no church in Sardis. There's nothing there. At some point along the way, this church in Sardis withered away, as so many other particular congregations and even denominations have done, like so much unused muscle or fruitless trees that then are cut down and consigned to the fire. To reference another parable of Christ, the fig tree bore no fruit, and so was cut down to the root and thrown into the fire. Let us, therefore, heed Christ's direction and his directions to this church in Sardis, that we would not waste away into oblivion, but rather grow and thrive in his grace and favor, which brings us to our third point, Christ's delight. We've seen his disapproval, we've seen his directions, and now we come to his delight in verses 4 through 6. They round out Christ's message to the church in Sardis. He sets before his audience a promise of future delight, delight that he will have in them, delight that they will have in him. He first identifies in whom he delights before detailing the nature then of his delight in them. In the first place, Christ delights in justified saints who have overcome the world. He delights in justified saints who have overcome the world. Those who stand before God the Father on Christ's righteousness, having been washed in the blood of the Lamb, bearing his righteousness, those and those alone are in whom Christ delights. He says in verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. For they are worthy. The clean garments here are a picture of Christ's righteousness with which the saints are clothed. Later on in Revelation 6 and 7, and something I want to point out here without going to those texts, is in those passages where the robes of righteousness, the white robes, the unsoiled garments reappear, they're always in reference to martyrs. In reference to those who bore a faithful testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ, even unto death, even unto their earthly demise. And so they stand before God's throne in white garments, resplendent in glory, reflecting his glory back to him in praise and adoration for all eternity. They were unsoiled by compromise with the world, which persecutes Christ's own. These are those who shall walk with Christ, as our text tells us, because they have walked with Christ. They will walk with Christ because they have walked with Christ. They, like ancient Enoch of old in the opening chapters of Genesis, delighted to be in the presence of God. They delighted to be in God's presence. To walk with Christ is to live with him. Practically, what does this look like? Well, outwardly, it looks like to us prayer regular devotion to the Word of God, careful observance of the ordinary means of grace, being here where you are right now, week in and week out, 
But as I emphasized earlier, it is an outward observance which flows out of an inward reality. It's a working out of what the Spirit has worked in. It is not hypocritical. It's not superficial. It's not man-made or artificial. No, it is the fruit of the Spirit in your hearts. It is heartfelt. It is true. And what the Puritans might have called lively devotion or religion, sincere practitioners of Christianity are true professors of faith in Christ, and they will walk with him in paradise because they walk with him now in this world. They love him because he first loved them in the gospel of grace in Christ Jesus, and then he will delight in them then because they delight in him now. In the second place, Christ gives us additional details of what his delight looks like in glory. He says in verses 5 and 6, read with me, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We see three components to Christ's blessing upon those who are clothed in white garments. There's three things that they receive from him, three ways that he delights in them. First, he will not erase their names from the book of life. This comes up again and again in the Exodus where Moses pleads with, uh, with God not to condemn the people of Israel, and he even says, blot out my name from the book of life in their place. We see it in Paul's ministry where Paul uh, says that he would rather stand condemned, he would rather be consigned to hell than to see his kinsmen according to the flesh kept out of the kingdom of God. He says, I would rather my name be blotted out. And Jesus Christ even tells his disciples, after a great exercise of spiritual power over demons and darkness, he says to them, rejoice not in this, that you have power over demons and spirits. Rejoice rather that your names are in the Lamb's book of life in heaven. They are elect from eternity past. They are secure in his everlasting salvation. They are reserved for God's pleasure, for Christ's delight. He will confess their names before the Father as the priest who intercedes on their behalf before the judgment throne. Indeed, this is the gospel of grace, that he, Jesus Christ, has absorbed the wrath of God for sin, and he stands in our place, interceding on our behalf even now, that we might be preserved as a precious possession in which he will delight for all eternity. Finally, they are those who hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a common refrain in these letters, but we mustn't throw it away. In each context, it hints at a different reality, and I think here it hints at the reality that Christ delights in those who have an ear to hear. Have you been given an ear to hear Christ's words of consolation and encouragement, or have what you heard tonight has what you heard tonight been solely or primarily a message of judgment and condemnation? The regenerate ear, he who hears what Christ says to the churches, what the Spirit says and declares to the churches, is one that hears his words of consolation and grace, invitation, his call to repent even. Christ's directions and declaration of the gospel and of the kingdom 
are what should have come to your ears. Christ's delight in his church and that message. Well, these are the sounds of life and not of death. You know, after the guns fell silent along the Western Front at 11 a.m. on 11-11-1918, do you know what happened? There's a recording of this out there. You can get it. The Smithsonian hosts it on their website. It's really remarkable. You hear the booming guns. They die away right around 11 a.m. all along the front. There's a moment of silence, but within less than a minute, birds begin chirping and singing. Remember, this is a region that had just been devastated by heavy artillery for years, four years, and yet within moments of the sounds of death evacuating from the air, the sounds of life come and fill it. It's glorious, even on this audio reconstruction. Might this be an illustration of what new heavens and the new earth, of, of what that's like? When this present evil age passes away, the groans of death and decay will pass away, and the eternal song of life, the song of the redeemed, the song of the Lamb and His grace will burst out in God's immediate presence. They'll be ringing in our ears for all eternity. When a believer closes his eyes in death, the pain, the agony of this present evil age and whatever caused him to die physically passes away and he opens his eyes and he's in that scene of glory, of that song of life thundering around him and then he joins his voice with it and contributes to that glorious hymn of redemption. Our God is not a God who revels in death and decay. No, rather he revels in life. And it's because Christ disapproves of the dead church and of its death that he instructs her to repent so that she might enjoy that life for, forever. We've considered what that disapproval looks like, who Christ is, and, and what exactly it is that he disapproves of in the church. We've considered his direction then to us. Uh, how he directs us in, in repentance, what that looks like. We've even contrasted it to some of the false teaching that's percolating in the church today, and I pray you reject that because that false teaching leads to death. But Christ's teaching leads to life. And what we've landed on then is the glorious picture set before the dead church in Sardis, a picture of hope, a note of hope to end a letter that opened with terrible and terse drama that Christ delights in a lively church. May this be our prayer as a church, as we grow, as, as we're constituted, perhaps this summer or this fall or maybe in years to come when we finally particularize that we would ever and always be a church committed to life and to living out the life of the Spirit in our society, in our community. One last picture, debated whether or not to bring this up, but I think it's apropos. When thinking about the sounds of death in a church, my mind always goes back to this incident where I played some music at a PCUSA church where I had never been before. I played a song for um, a lady's funeral at a USA church up on the main line in Philadelphia, and a pastor of another church saw me there and said, hey, would you come and, and sing and do some music for us? I said, yeah, sure, I'd be happy to. And I just go and I just share the gospel. And I went, and you know what? Their liturgy didn't look all that different than ours. It was well-ordered. It was saturated with scripture. I was pleasantly surprised. I was even encouraged. To be quite frank, it was more reformed than some PCA churches I had been in and EPC churches and other evangelical uh, contemporary churches. But then what I thought 
was the melody of liveliness in an unexpected place took a discordant turn. The preacher got in the pulpit and immediately, and I won't tell you how exactly right now anyway, he immediately began mocking Scripture, mocking the truth. He began saying only fools believe that Scripture is what it says it is. And in fact, he recounted a tale when he delighted in a professor of his actively deceiving Christians who were sending their children to study with him in a PCUSA college in the Midwest. And I sat there and my heart sank. It sunk. It bottomed out because the sounds of death were ringing in my ears. May that never be the case here in Antioch. May this always be a place where life-giving truth rings out where Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life is heralded forth to sin-sick and weary sinners, that they might be called to repentance, to wake up, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.